I don't know what I'm saying. So how are you? Are you, are you feeling good? Yeah, I'm feeling as good as normal. <laughs> I, I guess that's good. Have you have you ever noticed how how are you is not actually a very easy question to answer? Yes, I in fact often feel that people don't really want you to answer it. I mean, generally when I ask, I'm I'm genuinely interested. But I have discovered from the looks on people's faces <laughs> when I give them an honest assessment of how I feel that really they just wanted me to say, yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, I'm okay. Everything's good. In fact, they probably don't even want me to say that much. So you reckon it's always a short answer and not necessarily an answer that is either too negative or too positive. So if you were like, actually, I'm really glad you asked. I am absolutely fantastic. And here's a brief list of all the amazing things happening. Well, they don't want to hear that. Because that's like bragging. Yeah. And they don't want necessarily to become the shoulders to cry on either. So you want, well, uh, my dog died sort of thing. Yeah, God, no, nobody else wants to deal with that shit. Well, no, so shut up about it. But, uh, yeah, so really what they're looking for is just some sort of non-committal, very brief, neutral, sort of not-too-bad, I'm okay, I'm fine. Unless they're the sort of person that asks you how you are, expects the brief, neutral answer, only for you to then, out of politeness, ask them how they are, uh, so they can give you like a 20 minute monologue about everything that's happening in their life. I've definitely known people a bit like that. I, I mean, I'm the worst person that those people could go to, though, because I have a tendency to answer the question and then some. I, I mean, you've known me a really long time, so maybe you'll have some insight into this. I think it's a relatively recent thing. But Amy has said that I don't recognise the social cues when someone is trying to get out of a conversation, as well as some people do. I think I used to do a lot more listening than I do now. But I think that over time I've just realised that people don't really have anything new for me to hear. Do you see what, do you see what I mean? Yes, I do. I, I'll tend to dominate the conversation, mainly so I don't have to listen to people. But you will definitely have been in situations where you've seen me struggle to get a word in edgeways with people as well, so... I think a lot of people just talk over each other all the time, and I think I've just adapted to that a little bit. The problem is because we're on a, a podcast, and podcast. I've forgotten what the word is, obviously. I can't tell if you're starting to glance around the room looking for someone else to talk to. Well, that's one of um, podcasting's great secrets. You will never know exactly how much I'm listening and paying attention to what you're saying. <laughs> Yeah, Amy and I were up here the other day and she needed a notebook. So I was trying to find a book that was empty. And it turns out I've got loads of notebooks that I've really frantically written notes in for two or three weeks and then just got out of the habit. And so uh -huh. there are loads of half full, or not even half full notebooks all over this room. It's like archaeology looking through them, but archaeology into my life. And so I'm just surrounded by bits of paper and notes and stuff. Some of which go back to when we first met, when I was working on the gatekeeper with um, with our friend Eamon. Blimey. I, I'm looking at these things thinking, I can remember writing that. I have no idea what I was on about. <laughs> looking back at them, Steve, I, I think I might be a bit of a depressive character. No, really? It seems quite difficult to imagine, but it's not so bad that I might be a depressive character. I am prone to a, a sort of a defeatism, which I have recently started to find quite reassuring. 
I've managed to build a personal philosophy that actually uh, I think is quite positive out of this sense that the world is basically going to be out to fuck you and, and we're all a bit powerless in it. What bothers me is that around 97, from about 97 to about 2001, 2002, I was expressing roughly the same thoughts that I'm expressing now but I was still expressing them in a really six-formy poetry sort of a way. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to read anything out. There are whole sort of three or four-page passages where I'm drunkenly lamenting what was probably, if memory serves, a girl that I literally met one night in a pub and then obsessed about for three <laughs> nights. But then, <laughs> but then I look at them and I was in my late 20s when I was writing these things. Uh, basically, if the internet had existed when I was younger, I think I'd have got a lot more of this out of my system at a healthy age. Essentially, what you've got there is like a hard copy of Tumblr. Yeah, Tumblr is good because you write it and then you end up, because it's always there but it's always in public, if you are the sort of person who would go back and look at it, um, you have your nose rubbed in it on a regular enough basis that you would hopefully learn from it, maybe. Whereas I never had that. I just had notebooks that I half-filled and then lost and then never went back to. (laughs) So there was no learning experience because there was normally alcohol in the mix somewhere. So I just forget that I'd ever been in these particular states of mind. Interesting that you mentioned Tumblr because although, I mean, I I think we both know people who kind of get old thinking in that sort of very emotive 16-year-old way. So it's not that everyone grows out of it, but the interesting thing about Tumblr is, easy as it is to write off a huge section of the people who are on there, we haven't had a chance to see them grow out of it yet. We're catching a lot of people in this, like, three-year window of their lives, and then I guess they get to 21 or 22, hopefully, and grow out of a certain amount of it, and wander off Tumblr into this blue sky future where everything works out okay for them, or at least they don't have all the feels about it all the time. But it, it looks like just this vast army of ever-growing gro- ever army of sort of manic-depressive teenagers. <laughs> hey, it hadn't occurred to me before. I guess they go off onto Facebook and start being racist around their uh, close family members instead. And then later on in life, they uh, start typing emails to their favourite newspaper. Yes, or appearing in the comments, and then eventually, as they get much older, uh, far too old to keep track of things that are going on on an international stage. They become MPs. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I I was going to say... Every uh, last one of them. They start on (laughs) Tumblr, they end up in Parliament. And then there's this ever-growing Parliament, (laughs) because no one ever leaves. You basically die, then you expire out of Parliament. Once you're in there, you get to just stay, don't you? Isn't that how politics works? Mostly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, so there's just this ever-increasing... Eventually, all of London, they keep putting little uh, uh, extensions onto the buildings, and eventually all of London will be just Parliament. I think they've taken to burying the corpses of uh, long-forgotten members of Parliament in disused underground stations. Ah, is that why London's kind of steadily getting higher? I mean, taller, not on drugs. No. Because it's built on the corpses of old politicians. Yeah, I've got something like 39 years of wisdom as these books around me are, are showing. 
I managed to find in, in one book, there's about 30 pages that I was leafing through uh, uh, before we uh, started our chat. And literally only the last thing appealed to me on any sort of a, a level that I hadn't already exploited, which was uh, just the line, suddenly and only for a minute, everybody is walking in the same direction, which I think was this weird, supposed to be a bit in a story set in a city centre where, well, obviously that happened. Where, where where you were walking against the crowd and then suddenly you, everyone was walking in the same direction. But I think I saw it as a horrific thing rather than a sort of an optimistic one. Could be a double meaning, Nick. Yes, I know. I think I'm, I was working on several different levels. The other thing about these notebooks that's interesting is how many ideas for short stories I thought I had when I was writing them for Elephant Words um, a few years ago that actually had been knocking around for about 15 years, like almost fully formed in these notebooks. So they, um, it wasn't like you were traipsing through these old notebooks for ideas. They just, they were just re-emerging to you. Yeah, exactly. There's that idea that there are only about eight stories in the world or something, but I, I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. But I definitely only have eight stories. Nine if you include the giant squid. Yes, and ten if you include the llama. <laughs> the, the book that sort of started off this little traipse down through all of these notebooks yeah. was I found a book that, and this is kind of a bit of a damning indictment, when in the first year that Amy and I were together, once I'd realised it was kind of a going concern and we were probably hopefully going to stick it together for a, a long time, I decided I was going to fill up two notebooks for her, just of my daily thoughts about her, because, you know, I was thinking about her quite a lot. Oh, at that God, point. I thought you were going to say sexual history. No, 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 nothing like that. I'm I'm not going to read anything like that out anyway. And so I started one, which was this little Maleskina, which are a high-end premium sort of notebook, which uh, have the added benefit of being so tiny and bijou that you don't have to write very much in them for, for them to appear full, which was quite nice. <laughs> That's value for money. Exactly. And that was for her birthday in January, towards the end of January. And then I was going to do another one for Valentine's Day, which isn't long after. So obviously I was like putting the stuff that was just thought specifically about her in one book and little drawings and stuff in that one. And then in the other one, I was putting um, particularly romantic, uh, emotionally lovely things about her and i got Aww. the uh, the birthday book to her on her birthday and she loved it and she was very pleased with it the other book had about 15 or 20 pages filled of something like two or three hundred um this was in 2007 the first time she knew anything about it was this weekend <laughs> And it seems kind of like a bit of a damning indictment that the book that I was filling with lovely things to her, I basically stopped on the 20... Kind of a little bit after Valentine's Day. I think I must have realised that I wasn't going to get it to her for Valentine's Day. And then I did a little bit on the 26th of February. And I think the plan was I'd get it to her the next year. Which sounds like a pretty damning indictment of how relationships work, how romance works. And I actually said at the top of the last entry, you're going to read too much into the fact that it's taking such a long time to fill the book of love i called it the book of love you were besotted weren't you i know it's ridiculous were being the operative word is probably what <laughs> she would say more time even than it's taking to fill the book of random thoughts yeah i know it seems ridiculous that i would struggle to fill the book of love but find it easy to fill the book of random thoughts hey steve <laughs> I think the thing is, is that um, with the book of random thoughts, that was just going to be one volume in an ongoing set. Yes, well, that's it. 
But it seems like quite a damning indictment of certainly my relationship and probably of a lot of relationships because that would have been February the year after we'd met. That would have been just past the six-month, eight-month stage. Right. That was when we moved in with each other. From a practical point of view, rather than going home every evening and being wide awake because I just walked home, so having loads of energy to write in a book, um, literally I was spending all of my time with her, so it was quite difficult to find the time because I was actually living my life rather than writing about it. So what you really needed was a video camera perhaps strapped to your head or shoulder um, to record what was happening. In which case, you'd have then built up, instead of little uh, notebooks, you would have built up a few hard drives of um, documented video, yes. which then you'd never get round to editing together. Ever at all. And ever, then she ever. wouldn't see that either. So I think failing this way... Saved space. Yeah, definitely. I don't think we even had terabytes back then, did we? Um, we did, but they were the size of a small house. Yes, and I didn't have the size of a small house to, to fit them in. Uh, I think the optimist, well, not the optimist in me, the uh, self-promoter in me says that the reason I had so much trouble filling this book of thoughts about love was that I was doing such a damn good job of loving her in real life. The truth is, is uh, you set yourself a pretty ridiculous deadline mm. and you didn't meet it. It's that simple. Wrapping up the whole, we'd moved in and I didn't have time anymore or maybe I've just got settled into it and I'd rather do other real world relation-y things than mm. write a book but what you'd actually done is said right okay i'm going to do two books and one book can take me as long as it likes and the other one i've got to do in a month yeah no, and if right. i don't fill it i failed and if i don't meet the deadline i failed yeah sure you did the natural thing when you miss that deadline you're like well how can i change the rules okay well there's another valentine's day next year i'll just aim for that that gives me a whole year to write about it and with a deadline that far down the road of course it's very easy to just go well yeah I'll deal with it later. And if it's not there as part of a habit or present in your mind, then you will just forget about it. And that's how you get to a book that's still got, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of pages spare. So it really, you don't have to, you don't have to feel guilty about it in the respect that your love is in question, just your time management. Yeah. Do, do you know, and we didn't, I didn't really have podcasts back then about time management to make me feel better about this stuff. Oh, Yeah. Which I think is uh, a, probably a problem. I'm talking about 2007, like it's the distant past, but for all intents and purposes, it might as well be, <laughs> I suppose. But I guess the other thing about this book that's interesting is now neither of us is going to have the heart to fill any of the rest of those pages. So there's like maybe a tenth of this book has stuff in it, and then the rest is just going to go to waste. We're never going to throw it away, and I'm never going to finish it. Here's an idea. You mm. can have it for free. Uh, <laughs> why not have that book? As something that the two of you fill in every Valentine's Day. Oh, no, that's an idea, like our very own little relationship guest book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just one day a year you go, it's time to do a page in the book. And you both do a page or a spread if you're feeling generous. You know, it's Valentine's Day. There probably will be spreading involved somewhere. <laughs> uh, not with my OBS. <laughs> I think you're right, and that's genius because it's almost guaranteed to be the one day of the year where the book won't just get filled with recrimination and regret.
But normally, in my experience, what happens is, I'm trying not to front load what I'm going to say. You find that generally you do more romantic stuff in the early months of a relationship. I'm not the first person who's observed this, obviously. And now I've got this perfect uh, documentary evidence of exactly how effervescent and effusive and, and how much of an effort I was making to explain to my wife how I feel about her before she was my wife. Mm. The way that we sometimes we sometimes joke, and certainly Amy said it when she was reading that, but we sometimes joke when we look at older stuff, older pictures of us together, where she sort of, I think she's joking, where she says, oh, look how much you used to love me then. <laughs> but the truth of it is, and I can say this completely honestly, there's never been a point where the love has kind of trailed off at all. I don't love her any less now than I did at the beginning. Sure. Probably more, actually, as time goes on. Certainly now um, that she's uh, carrying my offspring. But I would struggle to talk about her or to her in the way that I did in this book or in the way that you do in the first few months of, of any relationship. Do you mm. know what I mean? Mm. And so the, the, the question kind of is, are you pretending back then, even if you're pretending to yourself that you're this incredibly demonstrative, uh, rose-between-the-teeth, milk-tray man sort of boyfriend? Or is that actually you, but you just, in our heads, it becomes less necessary to voice all of those feelings because it starts to feel like it should it should go without saying. I don't need to... I've given over a certain amount of my life to you I have, not to you, Steve. Well, you have. You only get every other Wednesday. But I mean, is it that certainly there are definitely some people who do make an effort to present a version of themselves at the beginning of a relationship that Mm -hmm. impresses the other person? In my case, I don't know if that's what's going on. I'd like to think I'm not that superficial a person, certainly. Um, but I can look at this book and still know that that's how I feel. It's just I'm not going on about it all the time. Hmm. The first thing um, anyone, I think, needs to ask themselves when they're looking back at the evolution of, of any relationship is to ask themselves what they're actually looking for in terms of a relationship. And I think, again, not speaking for everybody, I'll speak from my own position. Ultimately, you are looking for a partner in life that you can be intimate with, obviously not just sexually intimate, but personally intimate. You can be very open, you can be vulnerable, and you feel safe in being able to do that in a way that in any other sort of social dynamic would make you feel weak um, or exposed. In a committed, loving, meaningful relationship, it's quite the opposite. It's empowering to be able to drop your shields and just be emotionally bare with someone who you care about and who cares about you. Well, you've got to work for that. You can't do that straight away because you're going to look pretty psychotic. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? What you do in that honeymoon period, what you do with the, in, in inverted commas, romancing, is you're putting in a sales pitch. Even even if the two of you are in you know some sort of a relationship, you're still selling yourself to your partner and vice versa. They're selling themselves to you in, in a way. Um, God knows how relationships get together and evolve. Obviously, there's a million different ways for it to happen. But in those early stages, you're doing an unreasonable amount of selling, whether it's going out on a date, 
you know, and going to a restaurant that you wouldn't ordinarily go to because it's special um, or going to see a film that they like, but you don't. What you're trying to do is, is put a version, probably a version of yourself that is less complicated that you're not presenting your faults and foibles straight away because you want them to warm to you first and you can sort of open those things up later. Um, you also spend potentially an unfeasible amount of your time doing that. You know, oh God, when we were first together, you and me, Nick, obviously, when we were first <laughs> together, uh, we used to just spend every evening watching movies or we'd, we'd go out for long walks all the time. Well, yeah, sure. But that's unsustainable in the long term. There's other stuff to do. And that might well be, you know, the ironing and the laundry, or that might well be just coming home, having a massive cup of tea and then just slouch on the sofa and pretend the world doesn't exist because <laughs> that's more what life is. The romantic stuff doesn't happen every day because it's expensive on yourself as a, as a human being, on your resources financially too as energy it's not that you fall out of love with them it's hopefully that the sales pitch is a success yes. in which case you can dial that stuff down you know you'll still have you know, you know special nights out special um you know uh, city breaks or holidays or whatever where you can do the sort of the the more expensive unreal sort of stuff when you take a break from the rest of your life together you can do this together but just start opening up the rest of yourself to them and that's that's a level of intimacy that doesn't require uh, showmanship it just requires honesty yeah i think there's something in that because i guess earlier on uh, earlier on you're presenting kind of a, it's still you but it's the platonic ideal of you it's also easier to not be the more negative or complicated version of yourself because you're happier <laughs> Or it's all new, there's lots of novelty, you're working it out for yourself, so the ground isn't as fertile for you to get fractious and neurotic or negative. So it's not just that you're making an effort to present that version of yourself, mm. it's easier to be that version of yourself because it is all new and it isn't complicated, you're not normally living with each other, so um, you get to go away and recharge your batteries at the end of every day, which yeah. isn't an option that's open to you if you're at home. You, uh, if you live with each other, you reminded me though of... Um, the, the thing about, you know, we used to go out for walks, we used to do this, we used to do that. I, I probably have mentioned this to you before, but I once got negatively compared to a still my girlfriend at the time's new male friend because, and I quote, we never do these things. When I'm with them, we talk about quantum physics and books. Core. I know, what? right? If I'd realised I was allowed to talk about quantum physics <laughs> and books with that person, I would have done it all the time. It's just back then, um, I could still tell when someone was starting to look for someone else to talk to. <laughs> and whenever I mentioned quantum physics or books in that particular company, that's what used to happen. <laughs> so, um, And now, of course, I've got Twitter to talk about quantum physics and books uh, with strangers to, to my heart's content. It's brilliant. Oh, the days you spent with uh, deep conversations about quantum physics with the <laughs> hashtag comic market. <laughs> oh, I've had some of my most uh, glorious days on the hashtag comic market. <laughs> Certainly when it comes to relationships or romantic relationships, I'm one of those people who doesn't find the starting them particularly easy i find them quite distressing and so for me the bit of the relationship i quite like is the point at which you get to relax a little bit and not feel like you have to close this particular deal 
the the good thing about not having to woo your partner every day is the the good thing about having a partner who is as committed to you as you are to them Mm. means you don't have to woo them every day you don't have to be insecure about whether or not they're going to be there they're there the two of you can get on with the rest of your life knowing that there's someone there for you who you're going to help when they need you and and they're going to help you when you need them yeah it's not all about codependence, but it is kind of a relief when you finally meet that person. So that's one thing you don't have to worry about every day. Because one of the things I found certainly is a, a guy who does like, if I say I like women, that's weird because it sounds like I'd be different if I was gay. The truth is, if I was gay, I'd probably be very into guys around me all the time. I kind of am addicted to attraction to sure. a certain extent. Although I sometimes, when I'm single, end up after a very long time hitting that sweet spot where I figure, you know, I don't, maybe I don't mind so much. Maybe if this is how it's going to be, then I can live with being on my own. I at least get time to do my own thing. But most of the time when I'm single, I'm stressed out that I'm on my own. <laughs> so. Because it's always, it's always um, tricky, isn't it? Like, once you're, uh, once one, uh, I'm not just pointing at you, but once one is single for any period of time, you sort of just start smelling single to other people? Yeah. Interestingly, I have found, I think you start to smell of it a little bit earlier. Yes. And then after a while, you just end up not smelling of anything. It's just you become not asexual by any means of the <laughs> imagination, but you kind of, once you get resigned to it, uh, you stop smelling of anything really Mm. in that regard and that's nearly always when i start getting attention when i'm not worrying about it all the time yeah being on your own is difficult to almost everyone who is on their own but quite often for different reasons um obviously there's the fear that it's just always going to be like this and you don't have anyone to rely on i think the fact that I don't know if it's unfair to say that this is a more female trait, but you do get that thing where people start casting out, trying to find people that they like or that they can at least live with as an end in itself. You know, they don't want to be single anymore, so they start going and looking for people. Obviously, there's lots of um, singles websites and speed dating and things like that. Even uniform dating. Uniform dating. Yeah, have you not? You've never come across a commercial for uh, the uniform dating service. No, is that where people who are in the army can meet other people who are in the army? Or it's sort of more creepy than that, to be honest. Is it? Yeah, it's not anything to do with dinner ladies, is it? Um, it's not about tabards. <laughs> I think tabards could actually be a part of it. One of the fetishes, I guess. No, um, uniform dating is an online dating service where if you are someone who wears a uniform for a living, or if you're attracted to people who wear uniforms for a living, then you can hook up. So, uh, and it was sold on the TV commercial I saw in the way that you were sort of a desperately lonely cougar looking for a guy who's a fireman. Come on to uniform dating and there's loads of them what time of day and what approximate channel what demographic was this clearly being aimed at i um unfortunately i didn't have that particular moleskine uh notebook with me at the time (laughs) so so i cannot answer that question I think, one, yeah, once you start tracking notable adverts and when they're on, it can become a bit of an addiction in itself, can't it? And you just end up doing that all the time. Well, yeah, I mean, if it, if it was my hobby to note down any particular issues that I had with TV commercials just so I could get in touch with Ofcom, well, that would be a bit sad. 
I think that's the phase of your life immediately after you're no longer an MP and immediately before you start only writing to uh, local news websites as opposed to the nationals. That's right, yeah. Complaining that, you know, some bird's eye um, microwave meal commercial didn't have sequences shortened in small text at the bottom of the screen. (laughs) You can't possibly cook that meal in just five seconds. <laughs> that must have some text on the screen. My focus has never been, oh my God, I can't meet anyone I like, so I, I, I'm just going to end up on my own forever. I have mm. plenty of people I liked around me all the time. The problem was making anything happen there, so that's where my focus was. You found that your head could be easily turned and then you'd go off and have crazy little uh, dreams about what your life might be like with them. Y- yes. Quite often I'd write about it in, a, in one of my notebooks, oh, if man. I happened to be in a notebook phase of my life. <laughs> So it was quite easy for you to crush on someone. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, was, I sort of had a similar thing with finding it quite easy to crush on people and then having unreasonable ideas of what I might be able to make out of it. And I think the thing about that is it's, it's, not, that you, it's not that you suffer from being single more than other people, but it's always personalised. You being on your own is never just you're just on your own. It's I think it's probably more intense. It feels more immediate because... Um, it's not just that you're on your own. It's that person is just right there. They're so close. <laughs> yeah. If only they loved you. If only they knew what a great guy I am. Damn it. It's not just the whole faceless world that's rejecting you. It's very specific people <laughs> on a daily basis. But yeah, so yeah. finding someone and them seeming to, against all odds, like you. Uh, as much as you like them it's kind of a relief it's not that you stop finding other people attractive the way you always did but it's a relief to not be thinking about it all the time which is kind of what happens when you're single if you're me definitely Mm. i hope that if amy heard that I, i think i've said it to her and i think she takes it in the spirit it's intended it doesn't diminish how i feel about her as an individual but it definitely is a relief having found the person you want to spend the rest of your life with and not having to think about all of the people you might end up with if only they saw in you what you wanted them to see in you even though you didn't see it in yourself do you find yourself in this position of comfort you're now in being able to look back at not just past relationships but yeah like crushes and thinking oh actually if i'd if i'd had any sort of long-term meaningful relationship with them it wouldn't have worked out the way i wanted it to i'm quite happy where i am now i'm glad that things have worked out the way that they have yeah i've had a few things happen in my 30s that made me feel my early 30s were a bit of a benchmark anyway so Hmm. again i have plenty of evidence around me that i haven't changed all that much i don't think i'm any less angry i'm just less bothered about how angry i am (laughs) I'm probably no less neurotic, but I'm certainly more at ease of my ability to manage that. So one thing that I've always kind of... My first proper girlfriend that I had uh, when I was 14, I I always felt like maybe I'd been a bit rubbish at the end of that relationship. She was lovely, but I was a rubbish 14-year-old who kind of had had a crush on another girl before we started going out with each other and never really got over that. So I think I was a bit dismissive. And then we moved away, and I didn't manage 
to maintain that relationship because there was no Facebook or anything and we didn't have mobile phones so it was quite difficult to you had to write letters and so and and I just kind of I let it tail off because I was a bit rubbish and over the years I've kind of felt like I know it's quite difficult for a 14 year old girl to be well or a 14 year old boy to really be that much of a complicated asshole in the way that a 20 something person can be but even allowing for inflation she seemed like one of the nicer people I'd ever been out with I started wondering about not how it would have been if I'd stayed with my 14 year old girlfriend that sounds weird with it the really does. girlfriend I had when I was 14 but like starting to kind of uh, regret that one of the few chances where I was with someone lovely who didn't just leave me I'd been so sort of rubbish and dismissive I was pretty hard on my 14 year old self basically I think most 14 year old boys were quite hard on themselves <laughs> I certainly was anyway uh, Facebook kind of allowed me to look up this person and, and what I discovered about the girl that I had really been a bit lame and let drift away was that she's uh she's now a doctor i think she might even be married to a doctor she's got two um like lovely kids and every few years they go off to like third world countries or, or whatever and sort of help out in those countries so what i've basically uh, uh had identified for me really clearly is that had i stayed with her her life would probably have been immeasurably worse so that was the conclusion you came with. You didn't think for a moment that she had the potential to change you, to put you on a different course that would result you in not thinking so badly of yourself back then. Did that thought even cross your mind? I try not to. I think it was self-preservation that stopped me really ah. thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and there I am just knocking it down. Had I realised all this before, because this has all happened in the last couple of years that I found this out, had I discovered that before my mid-30s, it might have been a bit devastating. There are points in my life where it might have ended me to, to find this out. But certainly it's good that I was feeling a little bit better adjusted when I realised that, because that's probably where my brain would have gone straight away. Right. Um, I think there have definitely been points where I thought that what I needed was the right person to come along and, as Coldplay very wisely put it once, fix me. But that's ridiculous. <laughs> that person isn't out there. I definitely would have dragged her down. I mean, you know, I had my reasons, but, but I was a very grumpy teenager. You would consider then your first actual proper, like, relationship girlfriend was when you were 14? Yeah, I think so. Hang on. Everything was over the trousers, but yeah, I mean, in terms of emotional quotient and how long it lasted, yeah, definitely. Because I didn't really have my first proper girlfriend until I was 18, but at secondary school, you sort of had those, will you go out with me? Yeah, all right then, for like a week sort of things, and I've never counted those. I mean, that's it. This was one of those quite weird relationships because we didn't see each other much outside of school. We were part of a social group that occasionally hung out at the weekends, but you don't really have much agency when you're living in a small village and you're 14. And they live in satellite villages and stuff. You don't have your own car, so you're not going to see them outside of school. But we were with each other for months. And when we were at school, our social group spent loads of time with each other. So there was lots of sort of cheeky making out and stuff like that going on i guess i mean what do you measure pro proper relationship by is it based on amount of time you spend with them or emotional quotient or what you get up to with them yeah that's interesting i hadn't really thought of it like that thinking back now it's almost like i've been dismissive about a couple of relationships that i had when i was at school 
Mm. Probably quite formative ones as well. Yeah, I mean, they did. I mean, oh, blimey. Um, one of them might have lasted you know, like maybe two or three months. So I think for me, it's like, does it exist only at school or does it actually start pushing into the rest of your life? And on those terms, I might have had one, maybe two, but they were always brief. It's quite interesting because the this relationship was quite a protracted one. Mm. But at the time, I didn't think of it as that serious because I was still thinking quite a lot about the girl that I was walking home with after school. Because everyone got gets because of the sort of rural situation it was, everyone gets on their school bus and then heads off. Yeah, but school's still a huge part of your life. Oh God, yeah. Because if I'm thinking about it, the only other situation with a girl uh, where there had been maybe been a little bit of kissing before was a one day relationship where a friend of mine convinced me to jump into the deep end of the swimming pool to impress this girl. Um, I did. I almost drowned. I still remember that very vividly. We hung out for the whole day. The next day she was acting like nothing had happened. I think there might even have been kissing or cuddling or whatever. The next day she acted like nothing had happened. And then it turned out that it had basically been all to wind up another friend of ours. Oh man. And the, the male friend who'd got me to jump in to the water had been in on it as well and so it was just this horrible betrayal but that's Um, the only kind of scheme that like freaking kids come up with i know it's awful isn't it god this is pathetic i remember i think this was at middle school i remember having this plan it never came to fruition but having this plan with a friend of mine Oh, man. I can't even remember whether it was me or whether it was him. But one of us was going to beat up the other. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow that was going to impress a girl. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I can see how that would work either way. Either I was the hero because he was being a jerk or he was going to beat me up and then I uh, I would get the pity. Mm -hmm. But how How pathetic is that? Was there a specific girl that this was going to be aimed at or? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, there was. So it wasn't just a free-form plan the two of you came no, up with? No, it wasn't just like, hey, I just want random girl to be uh, interested, so let's do this plan. No, it was uh, there was a girl I wanted, uh, I wanted to be interested in me. Um, but I hadn't, it wasn't like I'd even done the research. Like, I knew what her response to violence would be, <laughs> you know? <laughs> to know which side of the coin I should be calling. Well, you don't think about this, though. It's not like you could have checked her Facebook page or something to, to see what her attitude no. to violence was. Or uh, I wouldn't have been able to put in a, an anonymous question on Formspring. <laughs> Teenagers have it so easy now, don't they? But you talk about Facebook and stuff, and, like, could you have happily lived the rest of your life without looking up the history of that girl you were interested in when you were 14? Yes, obviously I could have. I found it easier to be idly curious about that because I was in a relatively stable situation. I think the only reason, though, I don't know if you've read or seen High Fidelity. Oh, yeah, I've seen the film a couple of times now. I think that potentially the only reason I've never gone into that sort of tailspin where I try to get in touch with all of my exes and find out exactly what they thought of me is literally because I read it in that book before I had the chance to think of it for myself (laughs) and realised how incredibly tragic it would be. Yeah, I had a similar feeling, actually, about it. I would have seen High Fidelity, like, maybe three or four months after my first relationship Ended, so it was mm. obviously still quite raw yeah, yeah it's very raw it hangs around with you uh, a long time i guess i just saw that film at the right time in my life 
think now it's a bit contrived and shit, but it was an interesting social experiment, I guess, to watch instead of actually do, which would yeah, have been, for sure. you know, obviously what with only one girlfriend, there wouldn't have been much of a post-mortem <laughs> to, to go through. I mean, unless I was going to track down every single sort of silly little schoolyard fling that I might have had... There, there. Oh, yeah. I was going to say something about Louis C.K., but basically any conversation I'd have about Louis C.K. would basically just be uh, finding a series of his quotes, reading them out, and saying, see, he gets it. (laughs) (laughs) I think I kind of want to be Louis C.K. a bit at the moment, and I think that's kind of because we've got a very close friend who's basically the spitting image of him, and it makes it feel like it's attainable. (laughs) Like, if you could have that guy in a room miming along to a louis ck routine (laughs) that somehow he is actually in the room and then you could go and touch him and somehow become him (laughs) yeah these are all things that seem perfectly possible and reasonable well yeah not too dissimilar to the way that for um a couple of seconds you catch the eye of a beautiful young lady and get like what might be a smile from them and spend the next three weeks thinking that you know their every waking thought is about you Yes. Actually, you kind of hit on something there. Sometimes people find it a little bit strange that I still am quite buoyed by being able to exchange a nice smile with someone attractive. Mm. I find it happens more now and I find it easier. Again, because I'm no longer bothered about girls that aren't my wife that much beyond finding them attractive. Sure. Uh, People find that weird because I think, I don't know if they think it's disloyal or if they think it's a bit shallow or that I'm being a pervert, but uh, and there's there's probably a bit of that in there. But there's something about when someone attractive smiles at you or when someone... I, I don't think it's necessarily a gender or an attraction thing if someone that you respect responds positively to something you've said, where you get to be in your head, you get to go into this fantasy world where you are that person all the time. You are the person that person finds nice enough to smile at. Which, if you've spent a lot of time feeling isolated or or a little bit weird or whatever, you know, even though I've spent seven years with my wife and and obviously she's completely supportive and uh, respects everything I say, or not respects, but is impressed by everything I say, so that's fine. There was still 33 years before I met her where I spent a lot of time feeling lonely and depressed. So any reminder any little uh, topping up of my self-esteem that I get from positive experiences with people are a good thing. Does marriage feel any different? No, not really. It's a question that I probably had a a lot more uh, thought out and answer to not long after because it's something that people ask quite a lot. But I think the thing about it is we're not religious. We'd already been living with each other for a while beforehand. And although I became conscious of it being something that we would need to do to happily move on to the next stage of having kids and stuff like that, you don't have to be married to have kids, but we were kind of both conscious of that being the good way to do it, and we both wanted kids. We already had a dog. We already had a house. So you were already used to um, long-term commitments bleeding you dry? Yeah, 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 definitely, exactly. What was interesting about it was she wanted... Early on, I would have been happy if we'd just gone off somewhere and got married without anyone knowing about it. Once it became apparent that wasn't what we were going to do, uh, because I understood that she wanted to have the part of it that was us expressing how we felt about each other in front of our, our friends and family, I became the one who wanted it to be bigger or to have more people there 
if that made sense. Okay, yeah. Because she's from a smaller family than I am. So once we were going to have family there, in my head a switch went and it was like, well, of course we have to have lots of them there, otherwise it's weird, it's not family sort of thing. I think even in, even in situations like our quite modern context where you're not religious... Uh, you're already living with each other, your finances are already kind of tied together. There is a possibility for one partner or the other to build the whole thing of being married up so much in their heads that when you get married and it turns out you've got all of the same upsides and downsides as you have before you get married, nothing really changes. I think it can sometimes maybe be a bit of a come down for a lot of people. But we were very matter-of-fact. We wanted the societal recognition of us being committed to each other. But I already knew I wanted to be with her. I think people make it a bigger deal than it is, and that sometimes breaks it for people. And you get these weird things where they go off and shag a stripper the night before, or at their stag, or, or at their hen, or whatever, but... I've never heard of it in real life, but it is popular in fiction, isn't it? That, oh, you'll be married, that's it, you're officially tied to one person, so this is mm. your last night of being a, a free human being or whatever. It's like, well, hang on a minute, you know. If you were like, oh, well, you know, last night of freedom, etc., you'd be like, well, it doesn't matter. I've been in this committed relationship, I love this person very much, we're going to get married, nothing really changes on that level. Hmm. So by doing that, clearly they're not that serious. If it was about just having a shag, it's like, well, wait until you get married. You're pretty much guaranteed one that evening. <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I well, believe that. I mean, not ever uh, being married. I don't know if that's actually true. I, that might actually just be a lie to encourage people to get married. I don't know. Certainly there's a mixture of the religious connotations of getting married. And now there is a sort of a, a culture of wedding lingerie. Blimey. But it is really nice. Generally, when someone's thought a lot about their underwear, it's normally quite nice. So, yeah, I mean, uh, to be fair, there is quite a buzz from the whole experience of the wedding. But I just kind of feel, and I don't even feel that harshly. I think I've told you about the ex-girlfriend of mine who I bumped into um, in a pub 15 years after we'd been out with each other. Oh, right, okay. And she sort of bounded up to me, said hello, and uh, after a, a couple of, of bits of small talk, sort of said, oh, by the way, I'm a... I think, I don't know if she used the term polygamous or polyamorous. Oh. One or the other. Okay. Um, she said, I'm, I'm, poly, I'm polygamous now. No, I think polyamorous, polyamorous yeah. uh, now. And I just sort of had to say to her, oh, darling, you were polyamorous then as well. You just didn't have a word for it. There was always this tension whenever we were out anywhere where there was alcohol that she was secretly wanted to shag any of our male friends that were there wasn't even that secret at certain festivals so um <laughs> I, and i don't even i don't even judge that that harshly but yeah i think that a lot of this tension kind of disappeared once people started living with each other before they got married so yeah the whole last night of freedom thing starts to mean completely different things from what it used to mean because what does it really mean i don't know i don't know what's it all about eh? hey alfie yeah shedders on me lungs I'm being eaten away. I only really know that speech because it's on a cart of the Unstoppable Sex Machine song. <laughs> <laughs>
Half my pop culture references are third hand already by the time they get to me. It's ridiculous. I don't know. It's interesting. Another aspect to these notebooks I've been talking about today is, as I sort of mentioned, although the way I've expressed myself is different from how I do it now, and it's a bit cringeworthy, some of the language I've used, very few of the attitudes are actually any different from how I feel now. And I think I was always kind of conscious of how self, uh, self-importance, possibly the wrong word, but how unhealthy it was to be that in my own head but not really being able to help it the only real difference is i think i've still got all the same flaws i've still got all the same neuroses but as i said to this person uh, the person i was talking to on twitter earlier on the the difference is as time's gone on i've become more aware that things i'm good at i'm still good at them um, and the things i'm bad at i'm going to be stuck with a lot of those things but the thing i'm really conscious of is everyone is probably as fucked up as i am and that kind of makes me feel a lot better about everything you know what I mean? There's a balance to things, which is what I've become aware of in recent years that I don't think I realised when I was younger. I think everyone measures themselves by a standard that doesn't even necessarily exist when they're younger. But it's just interesting. It's I'm quite lucky in a way that I've got all of these fractured notebooks around. I don't know if everybody has that because I guess live journal and the internet hasn't really been around long enough for us to get much more of a view back more than 10 years or so. Right, yeah. If that. It's interesting to see how much you haven't changed and how much you have have just changed in really subtle ways. Have you got a period you can go back to? I guess you could go back and look at song lyrics and stuff. Basically, what I'm saying is, if you've got the opportunity to go back and look at your old diaries and notebooks, it's worth doing because it's crushingly embarrassing. And if <laughs> I have to go through that, everybody should. <laughs> But at the same time, it can be more surprisingly familiar than you'd necessarily expect it to be. Perhaps has the ability to be a positive, affirmative thing to do, to look at something that you jotted down, whether, you know, whether it was writing in a notebook or, like you said, song lyrics or some other form of just kind of expressing yourself, where you can kind of look back at it and sort of roll your eyes and go, God bless you for being earnest, but I'm glad where I am now. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't feel like I'm reacting to things entirely different from this younger version of me. I've just got a better view of everything from where I am now. Sure. I think more than anything else, you find it more ridiculous or uh, I feel like if I wasn't earnest then, I couldn't be this arch now. Certainly, I was, I was just going to say, there's lots of things. There's lots of things we say and do on the internet where it's clear that uh, as much as anything else, we're, we're quite able to laugh at ourselves almost as much as the rest of the world. And part of that is that we've been so crushingly ridiculous in the past that it's difficult (laughs) not to laugh at ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything else you want to talk about, Steve? No, that's it. Are you looking around for someone else to talk to? Uh, (laughs) I've seen a a mirror. (laughs) Quite enticed by it. Right, okay. Night, buddy. Okay, yeah, cheers, dude. Cheers. Bye-bye. Okay. Goodbye. Bye.